So one of the things that's always struck me about evangelism in uh, the Wesleyan background is the way in which evangelism and discipleship formation uh, always seem to be together in Wesley's thought. In fact, I would go so far as to call it a unity of evangelism and discipleship. One of the ways that we see this the best is in an experience in John Wesley's own ministry and leadership of the early Methodist revival when he took the revival up into the city of Newcastle in the north of England. Uh, Wesley first arrived in Newcastle in 1742 and in a wonderful uh, narrative that he provides for us in his published journal, Wesley describes the way in which he and some companions went into the town and immediately sought out an area called Sandgate, uh, which was a very poor area uh, near the ocean um, where a lot of the people who um, worked on the docks and worked in the shipping uh, that came into Newcastle uh, lived with their families. And Wesley describes the way in which he walks into Sandgate. He goes down to the corner of an intersection and he begins to sing the hundredth psalm. Uh, and of course, you have a, an Anglican priest that's just kind of wandered into your neighborhood and is starting to, to sing uh, uh, scripture uh, out of the Psalter. And uh, people stop and they, and they pay attention. Uh, after he finishes, he begins to preach uh, right there and a significant crowd gathers. Uh, after he finishes that sermon, he announces to all those who are assembled, um, I, my name is John Wesley, if you wonder who I am, and uh, if it's within the Lord's will, if it's by God's design, then I plan to be back here again this evening at 5 p.m., and I'm going to preach again. Uh, in the next, very next sentence, he says he came back uh, into that same part of Newcastle, uh, or in Sandgate, I should say, um, got up on the side of a little rise in the ground, a little hill, uh, began to preach, and he said that there were throngs and throngs of people, that he numbered even into the thousands. Um, he said that at the end of his sermon, people were standing there with their mouths agape. Uh, they, he said they just stood staring and gaping at me, um, and that when he tried to leave, the crush of people who wanted to come up to him and talk to him and, and, and just touch him, uh, that the crush was so great he wasn't sure he was even going to ever get out of there. Um, that's evangelism. Evangelism, at least insofar as we think of evangelism as connected with the proclamation of the word, okay? And that's certainly, I wouldn't say that that's all that evangelism is, but it's certainly an important part of it. Well, Wesley doesn't stop there because what he's really interested in is taking those who have heard the word proclaimed and uniting them together into a society, into uh, what we would think of as an almost a congregational body, uh, of men and women who would come together uh, on a regular basis to hear preaching, uh, to sing hymns, to engage in prayer, and ultimately to, to be divided into uh, class meetings, into smaller companies of Christians uh, for the purposes of discipleship uh, and spiritual formation. Well, Wesley says that he had a great response to this, uh, and he had such a great response, in fact, that after leaving Newcastle for a while, he comes back a few months later uh, and continues to build on that work. So in that sense, we begin to see that in Wesley's conception, evangelism is, it may begin with the proclamation of the word, but the evangelism goes beyond simple proclamation. Uh, evangelism goes into what Billy Abraham has very rightfully called uh, practices of initiation. All those ways by which we reach out to people who have either never heard the gospel or perhaps have heard the gospel but are simply unchurched and begin to initiate them into the faith uh, for the very first time. Wesley does this in Newcastle 
uh, with such stunning success that within just a few months there are about 800 people in that local Methodist society. Well, that's a great story, but it's not actually quite the end of it uh, because he comes back yet for a, another time, for a third time in the spring of 1743. And what he finds on his third visit to Newcastle is that things are actually not going as well as they had been before. Uh, yes, there are about 800 people in the society, uh, but there are a lot of bad apples that seem to be spoiling the bunch. There are a lot of people there who, um, after having responded initially uh, to the offer to join together in this Christian community, uh, are not living their lives in such a way uh, that, the, that, the, that the actual substance of their life is in harmony uh, with, um, with what the Methodist society was expecting and, and what they really believe that Methodists are called to be about in terms of their participation in the means of grace, in practices of discipleship, together as a community. Uh, well, at this point, uh, you have this very famous scene uh, where Wesley um, pulls out a list of rules uh, these will eventually be called the general rules, the general rules of the united societies uh, in the me early Methodist movement. And he reads the rules before the society and he says that all those who are going to abide, or excuse me, all of those who are going to be a part of a Methodist society are expected to abide by these three rules. The first one is to, to do no harm, to avoid evil. Uh, the second is to do all the good uh, that one can in one's life. And the third is to attend upon the ordinances of God. Now, uh, this is, in essence, taking the idea of the means of grace and putting it into layman's terms. Uh, the ordinances of God are what Wesley will elsewhere call the instituted means of grace. They are prayer, the Lord's Supper, searching the scriptures, uh, fasting, and engaging in Christian conference or Christian fellowship together. Uh, these first two rules, to avoid evil, to do no harm, and, and then also to do good, are in, in some ways what Wesley elsewhere calls the prudential means of grace. Uh, they are works of mercy like reaching out to the poor, uh, to the imprisoned, and to the sick. Uh, and they are also about uh, engaging in a kind of life with one's personal habits that are conducive to holiness, uh, and to do so in a way where um, one's fellow Christians are built up and supported uh, mutually in the process. Well, Wesley reads these rules, and then he goes about examining um, the society. And at the end of the examination, uh, the 800 members of the society that are there when he gets there are reduced by around 140 members. Uh, Seventy-something of them leave voluntarily. When they hear the rules, they realize, this is really not for us. Uh, but then the other 60-something are actually removed by Wesley himself. Um, and he gives reasons why he was doing that. He, he tells you actually uh, what these folks, doesn't name them by name, but tells what, what the activities were that they were engaging in that really were not a part of what it meant uh, to be a Methodist. At the end of the day though, what he's done is he has successfully united the idea of evangelism with the idea of a grounded, ongoing communal discipleship so that what it means to be initiated or brought into the faith and what it means to be planted in fertile ground so that one's faith can grow and develop and mature over time become one and the same. <music>